It's Monday, again, and that means it's time for the Religious Studies Project. I'm David Robertson. And I'm Christopher Cotter, and we're brought to you in association with the British Association for the Study of Religions. And this week, we have an interview recorded by Dusty Hosley, and it's with Darren Shercat on the subject of religious demography in the US. And this goes out to all of you currently at the AAR. Let's have it. Darren Shercat is professor of sociology at Southern Illinois University, Carbondale. He has published widely in the sociology of religion and served as editor of several journals of sociology and sociology of religion. Working primarily quantitatively, Shercat's work has covered religious demography, religious social movements, fundamentalism, religious switching and apostasy, religion and politics, and the connections between religion and immigration, race, ethnicity, family, class status, education, employment, same-sex marriage, marital infidelity, health care, and environmentalism. He is the author of two recently published books, Changing Faith, The Dynamics and Consequences of American Shifting Religious Identities, and Religion and Inequality in America, Research and Theory in Religion's Role in Stratification, which he co-edited with Linda, uh, sorry, Lisa Keister. In this interview, we focus on religious demography and identification, American shifting religious identifications, correlations between religion and social positions such as ethnicity or generational cohort, and correlations with various social and political issues. Thank you, Darren, for agreeing to talk with us today. You're welcome, Dusty. Well, I'd like to begin uh, by asking you to just briefly describe uh, demography, uh, particularly as it relates to religion and the quantitative sociology of religion. Demography is the assessment of the processes that determine population structures. So it has basic inputs from fertility uh, and immigration and exits as well from migration and from mortality. So we have our basic demographic processes that inform how many people are going to be in which category, whether these categories are different ethnic groups or uh, uh, gender processes or religion. Um, and so my study obviously is more interested in religious demography. And there are some hurdles, especially in the United States, to doing religious demography. Unlike uh, many nations, especially in Western Europe, we do not have, in Canada, we do not have religion questions in our census or even in our American community surveys that are attached to the United States census. We used to have uh, some accounting of religious bodies until World War II. And so there used to be a kind of census of religious bodies that could be used for demographic purposes in uh, the United States, but those went out in the mid-20th century. So now we have to rely on survey-based estimates of population parameters to determine how the religious demography of America shifts. The other interesting thing about religious demography is that the categories are not necessarily fixed. Unlike uh, death or birth, uh, you can't be reborn again um, in uh, actual demography, but you can have simultaneous processes in religious demography. You can change your categorical status, uh, which you can't do for other covariates like race or gender, generally at least, um, not a large scale. 
And those uh, that makes religious demography also have an additional component with religious switching, with conversion or apostasy, leaving the faith, uh, going to either non-religion or sometimes people uh, define apostasy as leaving a particular faith, especially in Islam. Um, to become a Christian is to become an apostate. Uh, whereas in my view, in a more sociological view, I view apostasy as the rejection of all religion. And that's typical in uh, most sociological discussions of apostasy. What are, uh, you know, briefly, what are some strengths and weaknesses of the quantitative sociology of religion? The strength is it gives us a sense of uh, what the overall character of religion is and what its trajectory is in a given time and space. Um, the disadvantage is it doesn't catch a lot of the nuance of religious experience and expression and what people find interesting and important about religion. It's also very difficult to uncover things like values and, and even beliefs um, when we get down to specific beliefs because it's difficult to ask that many questions. And questions about beliefs are often tailored to specific religious groups where other religious groups would find them anathema. They wouldn't even understand what you were asking them. If you ask a Catholic about the interpretations of glossolalia, you'll draw a blank stare. They have no idea what you're talking about. And if you're not a Pentecostal, then you may not. Uh, well, of course, most Pentecostals don't even know what glossolalia means, but, it, they, but they do it. And so that's uh, another issue. Uh, speaking in tongues, glossolalia is, is something that Pentecostals, particular group, do as uh, how they interpret one of the gods of Christianity possesses them and causes them to speak in other languages. Um, and that's what glossolalia is for in Pentecostalism. Um, but th those questions of beliefs are very difficult to uncover, especially in diverse populations where everyone's beliefs are different. In the United States, that's especially true. But the advantage is, is that in many ethnographies and many qualitative studies, we get a very skewed picture of what's going on. I was just perusing the program for the uh, Society for the Scientific Study of Religion meetings coming up. And there were an inordinate number of articles on uh, Taiwanese and Chinese Christianity. And all of them are qualitative. And it gives you this picture that somehow China has become Christian. It has not. Christianity is a small, marginal religion in China. It is demographically inconsequential. So I'm sure that many Chinese Christians feel very strongly about their faith. It motivates a lot of meaning in their life and their directions and careers and relationships with other people. But they're a small minority. And demographically speaking, China is not becoming Christian, period, full stop. Well, I'd like to ask... Um... In the, you mentioned earlier that in the U.S. there are no uh, questions about religion on the U.S. Census, for example, or the American Community Survey. Uh, and so we have to look for other sources to get that survey data. Um, some of those sources include the General Social Survey and the American Religious Identification Survey, 
Pew uh, Forum, uh, Baylor, Gallup, and other polls. So I'm wondering, could you tell us a little bit about the, the as a demographer, when you're looking for data and not conducting your own demographic data um, uh, polls or surveys, but rather using secondary sources that are already available, uh, sure. what are the differences between these different sources and how do you evaluate them comparatively? Well, this is a science. Uh, sociology and demography are science. And scientific polling is very diff difficult and exacting and expensive. There are scientific polls, and then there are journalistic polls. Uh, Gallup, Pew, Baylor are all done uh, in a journalistic framework. There are, I was just looking at that in anticipation of your question. Uh, I pulled up the Pew Religious Landscape Survey, for example. If we are to believe their excluded respondents, which they don't calculate into their response rate, which I should say I do not believe their exclusion from their response rate calculation, what percentage of the randomly, what you want to know as a scientist in order to uh, uh, estimate population parameters from survey data? We really want to know how many Muslims there are, for example. And that's a population parameter. There are a certain number of Muslims in the United States. And if we want to know that, then all we have is a survey to try to estimate that. The survey has to be taken from a representative random sample of the population to which we're going to make inferences, the United States, for example. If you do not have a high response rate, you do not have a random sample, and it's not going to be representative of the population that you want to make inferences about. If you're only interviewing 8% of the people who you target, that's a generous calculation. They claim at Pew an 11% response rate. I just calculated the response rate by hand 20 minutes ago. At best, their response rate. This is giving them many people who they threw out, hundreds of thousands, in fact, of numbers that they said are not in the population. Even if we grant them that, their response rate is 8.8%. So who are those people who are not in the sample? I never answer my phone. My phone was just ringing. <laughs> if it's not my mother or my brother, I'm not going to call them back. Survey research has become much, much more difficult in the last 30 years, and this is a problem for all research. Bad marketing studies, bad journalistic polls have made people uncooperative. Scientific studies like the General Social Survey or the National Election Surveys, if we exclude the online panel, the National Election Surveys now included a non-random sample of a convenience sample that's done online. Um, these are horrible. We learn nothing. There's nothing we can say about population parameters based on online surveys. Nothing. They are scientifically useless. And increasingly, we're seeing that they're getting useless for their journalistic and descriptive purposes. And so we're seeing things happen like when Cantor went down last year uh, to some guy who's literally named Flake, wasn't he? The uh, economist at uh, Small Women's College who beat the sitting speaker of a house and nobody saw it coming because the polls are bad, because they're not scientific 
And so no scientist, no serious scientist would use data from RS or Pew to analyze things. The Baylor survey also has only about a 20% response rate. It gets ridiculous parameter estimates from anything. They claim that only 10% of Americans are uh, have no religious identification. General Social Survey shows it's pushing up to about 21%. Which one's right? <laughs> There's no question. It's not a debate. It, it really isn't a debate. When you have a study that gets consistently over 70% response rate, and you're comparing it to something that has an 8% response rate, and unprofessional interviewers, by the way, uh, versus trained social scientists who are doing the interviews, who are careful and cautious, and whose careers rely on it. This is the other thing, is we have a principal agent problem in polling. When you're paying somebody to give you something for cash, they're going to cut corners because they don't want to spend the money. They don't want to have college-educated interviewers and pay people money to do this, train them. They want minimum wage workers. But when you're talking about the NORC or, or SRC or some of these, the people doing the interviews are people whose career are going to rely on the quality of the data. Uh, you, you mentioned NORC and SRC. What are those? The National Opinion Research Center at the University of Chicago, which does the general social survey, and the Survey Research Center at the University of Michigan, which conducts a lot. There are a lot of good, high-quality studies, and it depends on what people are interested in as to which study they might examine. Some of the best quantitative demography looks at longitudinal surveys where they track people over time, and several of my papers have examined uh, uh, longitudinal research where the same person is interviewed over a period of years. And you see how they change, whether they change their religious affiliation or if they change their beliefs about, about religion and things like this. But longitudinal research is especially difficult to conduct and horribly expensive. It's just uh, with the decline in uh, funding, especially from the National Science Foundation, this has really impacted religious demography in the United States. This is, you can't understate the problem that we have in the United States with the defunding of the National Science Foundation and how it's been uh, targeted towards the social sciences. Uh, you'd mentioned as, as problems in some of these larger polls that are, that are not the GSS, that problems of, of bias built in uh, and problems of exclusion rates, problems of the number of people asked to, to do the survey uh, versus the number of people who actually do the survey. And, and uh, GSS has a very high rate. I think it's 70 or 80% of people asked to complete the survey, whereas some of the other polls you mentioned, maybe it's closer to, to 10% or less. Uh, uh, what about questions where, for example, the ARIS, the American Religious Identification Survey, begins with an open-ended question, uh, what is your religion, if any? Uh, and they've added that, if any, in the, uh, I think it's the, the 2000, uh, the 2008 uh, versions, whereas it, the if any was not in the very first version, versus closed-ended questions where they give you a list, the surveyor gives you a list of boxes, basically, you could check Protestant, Catholic, uh, Unitarian, Jewish, for example, uh, and then they might say atheist, agnostic, or nothing in particular, as, for example, the Pew survey does. Uh, what are the strengths and weaknesses of those approaches, open-ended versus closed-ended? 
Well, the questions are important, and in some of your uh, uh, initial queries that you sent me, I think that this goes to the distinction between identities and identifications. And what the General Social Survey's traditional question uh, has been, which actually goes back into the 1960s, is a question about identification with pre-organized groups whether those are Catholicism, Presbyterianism, Methodism, but not just those, but the uh, subgroups within Protestantism, especially. That's what they're trying to get, is do you identify with a pre-organized group? Which is very different from what is your religious identity? And there could be multiple identities, and many people hold multiple identities about things that they consider important about their religion. Are you an evangelical? Are you a charismatic? Are you a Pentecostal? All of those things could one could answer yes to if one was in a particular uh, dimension of religion. But the question in the general social survey is asking something very specific. Well, if you're a Pentecostal, that's nice and fine. Are you in Pentecostal holiness, Church of God in Christ, or Assembly of God? Because what they want to know, and this is, this is another thing that, uh, well, uh, Barry Cosman likes to amplify the open-endedness issue. That's a, a difficult thing because what it's going to do is conflate identities. Because some people may just come out and say, well, I'm a Pentecostal. I'm a Bible-believing Christian. I'm just a Christian. If you ask uh, many uh, people from many backgrounds, they'll simply say, well, I'm just a Christian. But if you dug deeper, if you said, well, what kind of Christian are you? (laughs) What kind of church do you go to? And that's what the GSS interviewers do, is first they're asked, actually it's been expanded now to 13 item uh, question, are you Protestant, Catholic, Jewish, other, none? So none is one of the responses that is possible. And then they've gone on into... Uh, Buddhist, Muslim, Hindu, other Eastern, because we got to lump them all together because there's not enough of them to really make sense of quantitatively. If you talk about Sikhs or Zoroastrians or Baha'i or whatever it is, um, and then uh, Orthodox, they've separated and, and several others. Um, so they're, if they answer Protestant, they're then prodded. If you're a Protestant, are you a Presbyterian? If you're a Presbyterian, do you go to the Presbyterian Church of America or are you a Presbyterian Church USA? And that is the way that the interviews are conducted. And so you don't get them separating uh, identities that are related to belief, for example, atheism, versus uh, identities related to an identification with a group. If you're an atheist, then you don't believe in God, and you might be identifying with a group. Large proportions, for example, of Unitarians are atheists, and so that's a a separate dimension of religion that should be dealt with separately, because belief is not identification. You may have an identification as an atheist as well, but you may not. And many don't. Many just, well, I don't believe God, but, you know, I don't really think of myself. It's not a badge that I wear around. I don't think my ethnicity or my uh, region or something like this or occupation. Well, I'd like to get into, you you just had mentioned the difference between identification and 
and identity, and, and I know in your book and in the work of uh, the Culture on the Edge group, uh, which has an online profile uh, out of University of Alabama, uh, led by Russell McCutcheon and, and uh, fellows, uh, and they discuss, uh, you know, identification as fluid and unstable, as embedded in specific contexts, and sometimes even prompted by the survey instrument. Um, and sometimes, as, as you note as well, sometimes people don't even know their denomination. They, they know the particular uh, place of worship they go to, but they don't know their denomination if, if we're measuring denominations. So I thought maybe you could right. discuss that a little bit more. Yeah, it's very difficult, as I discuss in my book, it's in changing. Well, I'm, I'm a Presbyterian. Well, are you Presbyterian Church USA or are you Presbyterian Church of America? And they don't know. Well, are you Missouri Senators? Are you Elka? Um, and they don't know. And as a quantitative sociologist, what we often have to do is to lump because never going to accurately separate Presbyterian Church of America from Presbyterian Church USA. And we have to rely on identify their common characteristics and take it from there. And that is a limitation of any of this kind of research is that you, you have to make some decisions about which groups are going to fit together and about how savvy you reasonably be considered on these questions. Identification identities, though, also are problematic because they're fluid. Uh, back in the seventies, it was you know you were born right, born again Christian. Nobody talks about being a born again Christian anymore. It was an identity that was embraced by sets of conservative Protestants. That was obviously by Baptists in the United states because they're the ones who get born again and they came together to identify such as they could as the common group identities can become destabilized they can become sullied and that's what happened to born again christians that it became declasse to call yourself born again and so eventually they had to come up with something else another kind of identity that would bring together people with varied identifications in terms of their denominational loyalties so that they could mount a political and religious force. Eventually, this came called evangelical. But as I point out in the book, evangelical is a sociological concept. It's that groups want to proselytize. They want to try to convert people. That's what proselytization is. And many of the groups that call themselves evangelical in fact, do not profit. Increasing number of them apparently have now begun to embrace Calvinism, for example. Well, in Calvinism, there's a belief in predestination that gods, the godity, have chosen who is going to be rewarded in the afterlife and who is going to be punished with eternal hell. Well, if God's already chosen, then there's no point in trying to convert the heathen. They can't be evangelical and Calvinist. These are mutually exclusive religious concepts. But they aren't if it's an identification. It's an identity. If they want to call themselves evangelicals, then what am I to say if Reformed people call themselves evangelicals? Because they're embracing that as their identity. Yet, 
in a sense, sociological sense, they're certainly not evangelical. They're not out there beating Jehovah's Witnesses, trying to convert people to their cause. It's, you know, doing whatever Calvinists do. Um, I wanted to ask one more uh, question here, and, and it relates to, you mentioned earlier, um, surveys asking, you know, enlisting uh, Jew and Hindu and Buddhist, etc. And uh, you said they're demographically almost uh, insignificant, or demographically uh, insignificant, um, that, that such a small percentage in the United States, go, you know, from less than 3%, um, mostly combined, you know, about a little less than 3% for Jewish uh, identification, and you combine the, as you mentioned, Eastern religions or Asian religions, and it's also about less than 3% nationally here. And so I'm wondering, can we make any reliable claims at all about uh, non-Christian or uh, the, the nuns uh, about these other groups? Um, the problem is always the small numbers that you get from a general sample of the U.S. population, which may make those samples not very pro-analyses uh, or making inferences about minority populations, whether these are ethnic populations or religious populations. In uh, Sometimes uh, scholars have attempted to uh, sample from these groups using things like name generators, a uh, classic study by Bernie Laserwitz and Arnold Zaszewski on Jewish Americans that looked at uh, common Jewish surnames in order to establish a sample of American Jews uh, that would be much larger and uh, focused than what you would get from the 2 to 4% of the population that they were looking at back in the late 1970s. In uh, Janan Reed's work, uh, Janan Ghazal Reed has examined Arab American religions uh, using samples taken from Arab name generators. The problem being is that that might be okay for Arabs, but not all Muslims are Arabs, and, and not all Arabs are Muslims, of course. And so it depends on, on what one wants to make inferences about as to how appropriate those samples might be. Uh, it's even more difficult than uh, think about, or it would be easy to think about it, but hard to pull off, how we might do this with other ethnicities, such as Koreans or Vietnamese, where we know that there are several common names that would be uh, uh, linked to those ethnicities and, and that uh, may provide us with a basis for sampling. So does that allow us to make any general inferences about minority religions with such a small sample size? We can see where things are going, and if you accumulate data over several years, you can get a picture of what that population seems to look like. But until you have up to two or three hundred cases in a particular ethnicity or a particular religion, um, it's difficult to have much confidence in the inferences that you make. So of the groups that we can make reliable inferences about, uh, what are some of the major dynamics in Americans shifting religious identities? You know, how do generational cohort replacement or immigration, ethnicity, religious switching, or other factors affect religious identifications? 
for the things that we can make inferences about, one of the things that we know is that there's been enormous growth in the non-religious category in the uh, general social survey and other high quality surveys uh, clearly shown an upward trend in the proportion of Americans who say that they have no religious identification when they're asked, are you Protestant, Catholic, Jewish, other, they choose none of those uh, identifications. And that is also closely linked with non-belief. Uh, um, the, the people who say that they don't identify with religion don't attend religious services, and they don't believe in the sacred texts of the dominant tradition, nor do they believe in gods. Uh, disbelief in a god is now up to about 20% in the United States. So, it's, uh, so we can see those trends as being something that we know is going on. Immigration plays a role in both the growth of non-Christian faiths, which were largely not allowed to come to the United States until 1965. And those have grown largely through immigration, but also through many people defecting from Christianity to groups like Buddhism and other syncretic Eastern traditions. Um, and so we can identify that. But immigration also has helped spur the growth of the nuns, of the non-identifiers, because uh, a large plurality of immigrants who come to the United States are, in fact, non-identifiers. Uh, we neglect the fact that many of our immigrants come from Europe still and from Canada and also from Asia and especially in East Asia, many of the people who come to the United States don't have a religious identification, especially Japanese and Chinese. And among those who do choose to come here, they tend to be especially irreligious, even if they come from India or Pakistan or other nations that do tend to have uh, a religious presence. Um, because if you are a devout Hindu, you're more likely to want to stay in India than to move to the United States for a job. But if you're living in India and you used to be a Hindu and you really think it's all bunk, then that position at Boeing or at uh, American Airlines or whatever is going to look like an attractive position for you because the religiosity of your homeland is a push rather than a, a pull um, for migration. And what about ethnic composition? Uh, for example, uh, the changing nature of the Catholic Church uh, given immigration here into the United States. Yes, one of the things that's also very clear is that it's always been true, actually, that the Catholic Church is an immigrant church. It's always been an immigrant church in the United States, only now the immigrants look a lot different than they used to. Uh, the immigrants that we're getting who are Catholic tend to be uh, from all over the world, Latin America being the biggest place that we see them coming from, but also from Africa, from China, from India, from places we don't normally associate with Catholicism, but nonetheless, Catholics who are, for example, in India may find it attractive to move to the United States because it's predominantly Christian country rather than living as a minority in India. Um, so the Catholic Church has always benefited from immigration, only now they're no longer Germans or Italians or Poles, but instead they're, they're Latin Americans, they're Chinese, they're Indians, 
And that's having an effect on the pews and who you see when you go to a Catholic church. Uh, Latin American dominance in many congregations is very clear and is disconcerting for many conservative Anglo-white Catholics who uh, uh, hold, uh, well, quite prejudicial views against people from ethnic minorities. And that's... uh, uh, it's a coming clash, I think, within the Catholic Church between many uh, multi-generational Anglo-whites, we now just call them whites instead of Irish or Poles or Germans or, or whatever, um, and the new immigrants, the newer immigrants who are now populating the pews. But without those immigrants, uh, the Catholic Church in America would be in collapse, a complete state of collapse. Um, with the immigrants, the Catholic Church is about where they were four decades ago. And what uh, identifiable trends have you noticed in religious switching? In switching, the biggest trend is the trend out of religion, that people grow up in religious traditions and they leave. Uh, another thing that we've, I've found in my research that's contrary to a lot of the claims that came out of the 1970s and 1980s is that conservative churches are not growing from switching. The reason why conservative churches grew briefly in the 1970s and the 1980s was largely because of fertility differentials, that conservative Protestant sects, members of those groups, uh, had larger family sizes, and because of this, more people were being raised in those groups. But those same groups are experiencing record rates of defection. Um, even the Mormons, as is another word that was uh, fairly shocking in the younger generations, are actually losing over 50% of the people who grew up in those religious traditions. Um, uh, many people, Michael Howard has, has articulated this quite well, have uh, argued that the politicization of sectarian Protestant churches has led to massive defection as people uh, tend to disagree with some of the social positions of the church, as well as some of the economic uh, positions that have often come along with the embrace, uh, especially of the Republican Party since the 1980s in the United States. Uh, You and, and other scholars have also published about correlations between religion and social and political issues, such as people's views on same-sex marriage or intermarriage, uh, immigration, voting, environmentalism, health care, for example. Uh, could you choose one or two of those correlations and, and just discuss what those correlations are? Sure. I'll start with uh, some of my work on same-sex marriage, which I just finished another paper on, um, which hopefully will be published sometime. And in my earlier work, I talked about how sectarian religious identifications inform particular beliefs about the sacred texts of the Abrahamic tradition, a fundamentalist view of how to interpret uh, the sacred texts within their interpretive community. Obviously, they can pick and choose among which parts of the text they think are fundamental. But uh, one of the things that I've found is the sectarian Protestants are profoundly less supportive and and more opposed to legalized same-sex marriage in the United States. Interestingly, the other thing that I show is that uh, 
contrary to the hierarchy of the American church, especially, uh, Catholics are not opposed to same-sex marriage. They are actually even more liberal than liberal Protestants in their views on uh, whether or not same-sex marriage should be legal. What uh, a common myth, though, that's been uh, circulating in the in the press is that evangelicals, as they like to call themselves, fundamentalist Christians, are uh, not changing their beliefs about same-sex marriage. And instead, they have continued to bunker themselves in and continue to oppose same-sex marriage at rates that are much, much higher, no matter what generation you compare, uh, and to uh, other Christian groups, to especially those who reject religious identification, and to Catholics who embrace same-sex marriage, actually. And this is not changing. There there seems to be a real polarization of uh, religion on the issue of same-sex marriage, with uh, largely sectarian Protestants on one side and other Christians and non-Christians on the other side. The other area that I've been investigating has been on the conflict between religion and science. And there's always been a profound conflict between religion and science going back 400, 500 years uh, with the development of modern science. And while it's, uh, you can get a lot of money from the Templeton Foundation to claim otherwise, uh, one of the things that I found is that, that religion drives people away from science. Science doesn't drive people away from religion. It works the other way around. People are socialized from an early age into fundamentalist positions on religion that then hinders both their educational attainment, their selection of courses, and their attentiveness to the content of pedagogy as well as to developments in contemporary science such that they are much more scientifically illiterate than are uh, other Americans. And you see this with opposition to climate change, with opposition to specific research, and and just to... um, profound, uh, really basic ignorance in these subpopulations. Not all of religion, of course, is in the same boat regarding the degree to which their profoundly held faith or whatever is in conflict with science. Um, But it's very clear that for about a third of Americans, uh, their faith keeps them from understanding or embracing science and uh, and it's it's also affecting their children, of course. Well, thank you so much, Darren, for participating in the Religious Studies Project podcast series. It was such a pleasure to talk with you today. All right. Thank you very much, Dusty. Thanks to Darren Shercat for the interview, and thanks to Dusty. And I know that we had some issues that required a bit of additional work on that episode um, just to bring it up to the required quality so thanks to dusty and darren for doing that for us and thanks always to uh to cole for doing the uh, the passes and editorial work um on our podcast it makes our life a whole lot easier yes as does uh 
Kevin Whiteside's sterling work on setting up the responses. Oh, and now we're going to have to start going through everyone, the team. <laughs> now we start, oh, I shouldn't have started singling them out. Eh? Well, we'll maybe we'll do one a week until Christmas or something like that. Yeah, it can be like an, an advent calendar of the RSP editors. Right. That sounds good. That does sound good. And Kevin Whiteside's, our features editor, this week has set up a response from Evan Stewart. So come back on Thursday to read what he's got to say about the interview. We don't have too much news, and we've got a lot of news. There's a lot um, going on at the moment, um, but it's just not quite ready for um, public airing, and David and I need to have a proper meeting where we're not sitting scoffing lunch and coffee into our faces in between classes and whatnot. Um, But as we mentioned at the start, the AAR is happening, and um, thanks to Nasser, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, we have a dedicated room there for a time during the conference and i know that we're expecting oh, at least four podcasts possibly eight and maybe a round table um so it's quite exciting yeah it's going to be very uh, very exciting indeed and um yeah as chris says uh, never been more going on in the religious religious studies project actually um we are just not quite at the point of being able to announce all of it but hopefully um before christmas we should have at least one, maybe more announcements to make. One thing I will announce, and um, we got our first check through from Amazon.com, um, because we're not a US-based um, institution. Um, Amazon in the US, and they will only send checks, and they'll only send it when you reach $100. So we've got our first $100 check. Um, so thank you to our US listeners who've been using our Amazon links. If you're in the US, Canada, or the UK, go onto your website, click through, doesn't cost you anything, but makes us not insignificant amounts of money. And thanks to everybody who's been doing that in the US and in the UK and in Canada. It really does help a great deal. So, next week? Yeah, next week it's uh, Martin Lepage speaking with Mary Jo Knight on um, gender, queer theory and religion, um, which ties in quite nicely to his previous interview with um, Anna Fideli on religion, gender and corporeality. So. Indeed, and lots of um, lots of interesting issues about uh, these alterity studies and the study of religion, insider perspectives, outsider perspectives and the academy. So come back for that next week. And until then, if you need more RSP than just the podcast and the response, you can find us on Facebook, you can find us on Google+, you can find us on Twitter, you can find us on iTunes, and if you do find us on iTunes, please leave us a rating. It'll help us get the word out, and we appreciate it. But now, I think I just want to say thanks very much for listening.